to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. All right, I'd like to start us off with a passage of scripture. Let's look at Luke 19, if you have your Bibles, app, whatever have you. Luke 19, verse 1. This is the story of Zacchaeus. We're all pretty familiar with the story. Let me read it to you. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus is pretty forward. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Next slide. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, we're pretty familiar with this story. You know, this story, um, you know, we've heard it in Sunday school and it's been preached on a, a bunch of times. Whenever I look at this uh, story, you know, one thing uh, stands out to me. And that is this. It's uh, the people's reaction to Jesus' desire to dine in Zacchaeus' house, to be with Zacchaeus, has always puzzled me. Why was there such a drastic reaction to such a simple request? I'm just going to have a meal with this guy. That's it. But the people were up in arms. They were upset. They said, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And um, before I move on any further, I would like to give you a bit of context to this verse. You must understand that the Bible says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And a tax collector was a person who worked for the Romans, but he was a Jewish person. And a tax collector uh, was a person who sold out his own countrymen in order to work for the Romans. And what the tax collector did was he, the tax collector enforced the taxes of Rome. And uh, some scholars believe that the taxes in the day were about 50% of a person's income. And the tax collector would impose his own fee on top of that tax. And so tax collectors were known as wicked, vile people who betrayed their own countrymen. And Zacchaeus was the chief among all tax collectors. He was regarded as a vile, evil person to his own countrymen. And the second thing, okay, why the people were so upset, okay, is because Jesus fellowshiped or longed to fellowship with Zacchaeus. The context is this, meals mean more, meant more to their society than ours. A bit of context, and this is a bit geeky and nerdy, but follow me, I'm going to take you somewhere. Let me just preempt you, I have 41 slides today. 41. <laughs> so, you know, we've got to book it. 400 years before Jesus came into the scene, okay? If you read the Bible, you know a bit of the Old Testament. Israel was dragged into exile in Babylon. Okay? It was a thousand miles to the east of Jerusalem. That would mean that the Jews, the people of God, no longer had access to the temple in Jerusalem. And by extension, had no longer access to 
the sacrificial system they had in place, no longer had access to the priesthood. Now imagine if you were a Jew, okay, you were you're in exile in Babylon, away from the temple, which was the center of the Jewish faith. Okay? They had the sacrificial system in place, the priesthood was there, and you were in exile away from that. Okay? How would you then live your faith? How would you then sacrifice? How would you then worship God? And so the Pharisees, who were also in exile, they tweaked the faith a bit. They adopted, they did something different. And so what they did was they reinvent and reorient the faith such that now instead of going to the temple to offer sacrifice, your home was the temple now. Your home was the temple. Not only that, your table, the place where you eat, was the new altar and the father of the house was the new priest. So they reorient and reinvent the faith because they no longer had access to the temple and now my home is the temple of God. My table is where I lay my sacrifice, and the father is now the priest. Follow me? Yes? Because of that, what ended up happening was the Pharisees ended up upping the ante of what it meant to walk in God's statutes. Because the home was now the temple, the father was now the priest, every Jewish person was called to live up to the standard of priesthood, or was called to embody the standards of the temple. Okay, follow me, taking you somewhere. What does that mean? Okay, in the temple, no Gentile was allowed in the temple, no one with deformities was allowed in the temple, no one was with infirmities was allowed in the temple, no sinner was allowed in the temple. None of these people qualified to enter the temple. And so follow me. Now your temple is the home. Okay? And then now your home is the temple. Because you now hold on to the temple standard. Now no Gentile is allowed in the home. No person with deformities is allowed in the home. No person with infirmities is allowed in the home. No sinner is allowed in your home. Okay? And that is the context to which Luke was writing this story. Jesus wanted to fellowship with a sinner. Crazy. When Jesus invited Zacchaeus, he broke the mold and showed us a new way of life. That we could fellowship with sinners. Luke's gospel is full of stories of Jesus eating with people. You know, let's look at uh, the slide from Luke. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke, 7, in Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal where he urges people to invite the poor. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with his disciples and later eats fish. An author wrote, it is safe to say that throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> Amazing. How will you complete this sentence uh, as a Bible-believing Christian? The Son of Man came to blank. How will you comp complete that sentence? 
you know, save the lost, blah, blah. The New Testament has three uh, different accounts of, for this sentence, and it completes the sentence in these three ways. First up, in Mark chapter 10, it says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 19, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But I'd like to draw your attention to the third time, okay, that the Bible uses this verbal formula, this phrasing. Okay? And it's in Luke chapter 7, it says this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. Tim Chester, a New Testament scholar, says this, The first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. But the third, according to this scholar, is a statement of method. How did Jesus come to save the lost? How did he come to seek the lost? He came eating and drinking. And with that, we break for lunch. Shorter sermon ever. You wish I have 38 more slides. <laughs> Here's a conclusion I'd like to draw you to. Sharing meals played a vital role in the ministry and mission of Jesus. Meals were a sign of his abounding grace towards sinners. In the past, okay, before Jesus came to the sin, the table was the altar. Okay, it was the place where you laid your sacrifice. Therefore, okay, I cannot okay, interact with people who believe differently from the way I did and behave differently from the way I did. But then Jesus broke the mold when he had fellowship with Zacchaeus. Meals in the past was a mean of, means of exclusion. It's a means of showing that there's a hierarchy. There's a system in place and I don't interact with you. But then when Jesus came onto the scene, meals became a means of inclusion. It became a means of showing abounding grace, favor, love, and welcome. Sharing a meal is more than eating food together. A shared meal represents friendship, community, and grace. It was the way Jesus showed love, acceptance, and value and was what the early church looked like. It looked like a gathering over a meal. Let's look at these two passages of scriptures in Acts. Next slide. The believers met together in the temple every day. They ate together in their homes, happy to share their food with joyful hearts. Next slide. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued teaching the people and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Max Lucado has a great quote on hospitality and he says this, long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. That's a great quote. Long before we had pulpits, baptistries, sanctuaries, buildings to meet in, we had dinner tables. The New Testament writers would call this practice of eating and drinking, of inviting the outliers of society, the ones far off and scorned, they would call this practice hospitality. Hospitality. When you think of hospitality, you know, most of us have the image of uh, Martha Stewart, Pinterest, uh, dishes, cups that you would not you'd normally use unless there's guests. Uh, severe amount of cleaning, you know, I divide my friends into two categories, ones that I clean up before they come and ones that I don't. Uh, if I don't clean up, my house is a mess when you come, 
know that I love you a lot. And I feel very safe around you, you know. Hospitality looks differently to different people, all right? But here's, here's a thought. The practice of hospitality really originated and began in early Jewish culture and is defined and looks different from what we commonly understand it to be today. When we think of hospitality, we think hotels, we think, uh, be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. No, we, we think of it this way, but the practice of hospi- hospitality far dates back, you know, before even hotels came to place. You know, it originates in early Jewish culture. I'd like to shed some light on what hospitality really is, biblical hospitality. Hospitality in the Greek, when it's mentioned in the Bible, comes from these two words, philos and xenia. Philos, xenia. Philos, we know it to mean love. But the word xenia okay, would translate to stranger or guest. So hospitality, okay, really in its core definition, means the love of stranger or the love of a guest. It's the opposite of xenophobia, which is the fear of strangers. Hospitality might sound unexciting or initially really confusing. You know, I had to psych myself up to talk about this message. But no, I, I really found some goal and some gems, and I really believe that we'll be blessed as a, as a people. Hospitality. When the Bible speaks of hospitality, it almost, almost always ties it to aliens and strangers. What does that mean? People who aren't like us. If I had to come up with a definition for hospitality, it would be this. To give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle of friends. It's opening your life, your house, to those who believe and behave differently than you. That story of Zacchaeus you know, strikes me to such a great depth and degree. Jesus extended welcome and love to Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, a sinner, a person who has probably lived his whole life pursuing his own gain, selfish individual who didn't think twice about betraying his countrymen. And when Jesus offered that love and welcome, instantly Zacchaeus repented and said, Lord, I'll give it all away. I'll give it all away. There's something about hospitality that unlocks the divine. I'd like to share you three definitions of hospitality that I've found on the net. And these three, you know, I believe really encapsulate, really capture the meaning of what biblical hospitality is. The first is this, to show benevolence or kindness to those outside your circle. The second is this, expressing the welcome of God to all through tangible acts of love, ideally through the giving of food, shelter, and relationship. And the last one is this, I love this, turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. It's a quote by a lady named Rosario Butterfield. And she wrote a great book on hospitality. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Love the book, you know. If you have the chance, pick that book and read it. But I'd like to share with you a bit about Rosario, Rosario Butterfield. This is a bio. Rosario Butterfield was a far-left, radical, lesbian feminist. She was a tenured professor with a specialty in postmodern critical theory in literature. Really smart, super unchristian. And she was writing a book on how basically Bible-believing Christians were the absolute worst. She was doing some research, she was writing a book on that. And the story goes that she wrote an editorial in the New York paper that was a criticism, an indictment on a Christian men's conference. So this was a lady who hated Christians, who was doing a research paper, was writing a book about how Christians were bad for society. And she was doing a bit of research on that, and she wrote a paper. A local pastor ends up 
writing to her a thoughtful response that came with an invitation to dinner. She hesitated. You know, it said that you know, she struggled with that in, in a book. You, know, you can read the whole story. But she thought to herself, like, hey, I need to do research my book. Anyway, let me just go to dinner. And she went. And what ends up happening was that she experienced so much warmth, welcome and love, hospitality, that she ends up coming back again and again. She started coming for Bible studies, started coming to church. And today she's now married to a reformed Presbyterian pastor. She's a foster parent and runs a Christian commune out of her house. Beautiful. Hospitality does, does something, you know. And the whole premise of her, of her book is this, you know. That the LGBTQ community does a way better job at hospitality than the church. Rosera Butterfield, she, she writes this uh, in a book. She goes, radically ordinary hospitality. Come on. That's beautiful. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know that they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take their own sin seriously, including the sin of self-inertion and pride. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. For week eight of Build a City, I'd like to share with you on the topic of radically ordinary hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality. And this whole series was meant to talk, we were talking about the core values, the core cultures, the core atmospheres we would like to have in the church. I'd like to suggest to you that culture either happens by design or by default. If we long to see things happen in our midst, we have to be intentional about it. Culture doesn't happen by passivity. I'm making sense. I'd like to share with you another quote. I have many quotes, great quotes. It's a man named Simon Carey Holt, and this is a chef turned theologian. Beautiful, chef turned theologian, and he has this quote. It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday, it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. Next slide. At base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Wow, that's amazing. So what does that say to you and me that when we set the table, when we invite people for a meal, it's so much more than just hanging out. But we are creating a space, a context for the Spirit of God to touch the lives of people, our guests. You know, I, I, I feel that you know, as a church, we do hospitality pretty okay. You know, I've been to some of your houses and you welcome me so awesomely and warmly with great food. We do it well, you know. Uh, and so to people like, like you, you know, who have been hosting people, I say, amen, amen. Don't underestimate it. It's a form of ministry. Yeah. I believe God wants to take us to a whole different level as a church, as a community. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 
Hospitality is all over the Bible. In fact, it's so important to God that when Paul lists out traits necessary for a man to be qualified for leadership, he says this in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy says, the leader has to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now when I read that verse, you know, my heart sank because I'm an introvert. You know, I struggle talking to people. I'm a second meeting kind of guy, you know, I'm terrible with first impressions. Most of you have been, have experienced that firsthand. <laughs> Why is Andre so awkward? Does Andre even like me? <laughs> Here's the thing, you know, if, if you know, I, I'm your pastor, right? If I had two wives, you probably wouldn't want me as a pastor, yes? Yes? If I was not sober-minded, I came here high as a kite. All of y'all would be like, yo, sit down, sober up, we'll find another pastor. Okay? If I was not self-controlled, you know, if I was angry, angry all the time, beat up people, you would not want me. If I was not respectable, you would ask me to take a seat. If I was not able to teach, if I struggle to just read the Bible and share with you heresies every day, you would tell me, pastor, that's, that's enough, we'll, we'll find another person. But all those characteristics, all those traits and skill sets we associate with a person leadership, that we see as necessary, okay? All those traits, okay? they are on the same playing field as hospitality, as being hospitable. And so that speaks to me, like, Andre, if you're not hospitable, you do not qualify for leadership. Doesn't matter what your personality type says, Andre. You know, sometimes we look at these MBTI star strengths finder, and we go, hey, you know, my strengths finder say I'm not inclined to do these kind of things. You know, I love you know, these personality tests, and I think they, they provide insight to how a person is wired. But can I share with you a, just a really simple encouragement? Your personality test or the results of personality tests are by no means a way for you to not do the kingdom stuff. They are not a means for you to validate dysfunctional behavior. My personality test says that I hate people. Therefore, people, you suck. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. This sermon is an introvert's nightmare. One of the titles I was exploring is Build This City, an Introvert's Nightmare. <laughs> How many of you are professed introverts? And show of hands. Yeah. How many of you are professed extroverts? Yes? Yeah. One person defined uh, extroverts and introverts as such. You know, extroverts are people who say something and introverts are people who have something to say. <laughs> Let's look at another passage of scripture, Romans 12. We have a lot of ground to cover. Romans 12. Are, are you with me? Following me, yes? Romans 12. Goes like this: Love each other, and this is how you do it with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other, and when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager. Come on, always be eager to practice hospitality. In some translations, it says to pursue hospitality. In some translations, it says to continually do hospitality. Therefore, we can assume that hospitality is not an event. It's not something you activate and deactivate, but it's a lifestyle. Something that we're called to consistently do. To reveal the love of God through our acts of service, through hospitality. 
To the Jewish people, hospitality was the law. Hear me. Hospitality was the law. It was one of the mitzvahs, which means commandments. Hospitality as a commandment. For Jewish people in that day, okay, this was what hospitality looked like. And this was something that they had to do by Jewish law. Whenever a guest were to approach their house, they had to run out and greet the guests. Run out and greet the guests. Come on, Andre, don't run for nobody. <laughs> run out and greet the guests. They had to feed, clothe, and shelter the guests. Not just physically, but they were called and they were admonished in scripture to protect their guests at all costs. Think of the story of Lot. He protected his guests at the risk of his own life. And that was what a Jewish person had to do by law. They had to protect their guests. And not only that, they had to tend to their needs. If they needed money, the guests needed money, the village would have to, co- would have to collect an offering for the person to leave with money. They had to meet their needs. Yeah, you, you are not guests anymore. You are... You live here. This is your house. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. It's by law. It's in commandment that hospitality has to be displayed to guests, to strangers, to aliens. For the church, for Bible-believing Christians, hospitality is not a side ministry, but it's foundational and fundamental to the Christian faith. For the city, we have a high value for hospitality. You know, that's why we run uh, programs like Alpha. You know, um, some of you are here because of Alpha. And in Alpha, we put out a table, we have good food, and we on purpose, you know, budget to have great food. Nowadays, like $2.50 chicken rice, we give you solid bento sets with a bottle of water. <laughs> and we, we put up fairy lights, and we put up plants, you know, and we do it up nicely. We have cultures so that people are comfortable. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because hospitality is in the heart of God. It requires effort. It requires diligence. It requires intentionality. At a city, we have a high value for hospitality. We have high value for eating and drinking and talking about gospel. The gospel seems to suggest that the good news of Jesus Christ goes well with a nice Pinot Noir, a nice sourdough bread, some steak. That was how the gospel was shared over a table, over a meal. It's not an insurance salesman tactic, but it's done so in the context of fellowship, of community, of love and belonging. That's the gospel. You know, today we, we soft launch a new ministry. Uh, I don't think most of you realize, but we have a new ministry. It's called a host ministry. And what the hosts exist to do is that they exist to engage with uh, newcomers, with people who are thinking of making the city church their home church. Uh, they engage with people who are just sitting alone by themselves and get, make sure that they have like, the necessary information, what life groups are available, what ministries are available. And the host exists to bridge that gap okay, from turning neighbors and strangers into our family. So a host exists to do that. And we were, when we were forming this new ministry, and if you're interested, talk to my brother, Daryl. Wave. Uh, Steve, where's Steve? Wave, yeah. So these two guys are running the host ministry. You know, when we, took, when we started this host ministry, we started with a vision of making this ministry redundant. We started with the vision of making this ministry unnecessary. The goal of this ministry is for us to create a welcoming culture as a church, not just have people doing welcome. You know, ushers do a great job. They stand at the door, they welcome, they shake your hands, they welcome you. But there's a difference between welcoming a person and having an atmosphere of welcome. 
And as a church, okay, hospitality is not just a ministry that we empower, but hospitality is a culture that we're all called to carry collectively as a church, to have a culture of welcome, to extend love and belonging. That's what we're called to do. Amen? I'd like to share with you four points on biblical hospitality, if you'll allow me to. Even if you don't allow me, I have the mic, so. Four points of biblical hospitality. First point, biblical hospitality is given without the expectation of reciprocity. It's given without the expectation of reciprocity. Let's look at story in Luke 14. And this is Jesus talking to people who just had a banquet. And Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. Thank goodness I had my wedding before I read this verse. Course, that'll be a really different wedding. <laughs> but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Those groups of people, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, were the very people who were forbidden from entering into the temple and now by extension forbidden to enter the houses of Bible-believing not Bible-believing, of Jewish people. They were forbidden. And so Jesus is saying, if you have a banquet, invite these people. And notice that these people cannot repay you. But one day your reward is great because your reward comes from the Father himself. There's a difference between entertainment and hospitality. There's a difference. In entertainment, it's clear that it's a performance-oriented thing. You know, you entertain, you're trying to impress, you're trying to show people how much you have, you're trying to show people how well you do things. It's performance-oriented, but in hospitality, it's all about service. It's all about how well and how much you can serve a person. Writer once said that hospitality is not about thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. In performance, there's a clear line between host and guest. But in hospitality, that line is blurred. We read in the scripture, Jesus, when he went to a person's house, he was both host and guest. He came to give and he also came to receive. In entertainment, it's often based on the foundations of reciprocity. If I entertain you to this degree, there's a subtle expectation that I will be treated the same way as well. Or you entertain a person in order to get some f- sort of favor. I treat you nicely so that you will network me to this individual. I treat you nicely so that you will do these things for me. Entertainment is built on reciprocity, but hospitality is built on generosity. There's a difference between entertainment and hospitality. Are you following me? Next point of biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is to give freely what we have freely received. The Bible says this in Colossians that once we were alienated and enemies in our minds by our wicked works, yet now Christ has reconciled us unto himself. We are hospitable because God was first and foremost hospitable to us. Hospitality means the love of strangers. It means the love of guests. It means the love for people who believe and behave differently from you, do, from the way you do. And the greatest expression of hospitality was God's unconditional love to us. The Bible says that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, gave his life for us. While we are alienated, while we are strangers, while we are far away, far apart from God, he loved us and extended 
hospitality to us. John Piper says this about hospitality. When we practice hospitality, here's what happens. We experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality. Come on. Rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Next point of biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality eliminates the divide. It eliminates the divide. We have to understand that the church was founded okay, under such a, a context. There were, scholars believe, some 15 different nationalities that heard Peter's sermon after the day of Pentecost. And so think about the, the, the early church. You had the Jewish people, of course, who heard the gospel. You had Gentiles who wanted to believe the gospel. You had the oppressed who believed the gospel, along with the oppressors, the ones who owned slaves. They also believed the gospel. You had men who believed the gospel. You had women who believed the gospel. And the church was so diverse and to some degree so divided. That was how the church started. If you look around the room today, you know, you see people from different nationalities, different backgrounds, different upbringings. And this is what the church is. We are united not based on our, you know, the color of our skin, our social economic status. But we're united because of Christ. And Jesus came to eliminate the line between us and them between us and them. Let's look at this story in Acts chapter 11. This is a long one, but we'll get to it fast. Acts chapter 11, okay, talks about Peter. When Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him and said, you entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. This is a problem, okay? They're still trying to get over this whole idea of, oh, now we can eat with sinners. Now we can fellowship with people who are not like us. They rebuked Peter. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. He says this, I was in the town of Joppa, he said. And while I was praying and I went into a trance and saw a vision, something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me when I looked inside the sheet. I, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Sorry, vegetarians. No, Lord, I replied. Peter said, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But a voice from heaven spoke again saying, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was put back to heaven. Let's fast forward to verse 15. Peter continued, the Holy, back, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believe." in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to stand in God's way? Next slide. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising the Lord. They say, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. The Jewish people in that day were some of the most racist people. You know, uh, if you know a bit about uh, geography in that day, you know, um, you know that uh, Jerusalem was right here and Samaria was right on top of Jerusalem. And on top of Samaria was Nazareth. And the Jews would often go to Nazareth for different reasons. And parallel to these three lands was the Jordan River. And it was said that the Jews, whenever they wanted to travel from Jerusalem 
to Nazareth, instead of going through Samaria, which was the most direct route, they would go and cross the Jordan River, walk along the banks, and cross it again in order to enter Nazareth. They, had, they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans because to them, Samaritans were a lesser people. They were the outcasts. They were half-breads. They were pagans. They drew a clear distinction, us and them. But watch this, you know, in the Bible, the greatest revelation of worship, worshippers, God is seeking for worshippers who are worship in spirit and truth, was given to a Samaritan woman. The Jews wouldn't even be caught dead talking to a Samaritan. But Jesus, he not only spoke with her, he empathized with her, and he entrusted her with one of the greatest revelations of the Bible, revelation of worship. He came to erase the line between us and them. In the Old Testament, the lepers contaminated the clean by touching them. But in the New Testament, Jesus touched the lepers and healed them. Sometimes as Christians, we inadvertently draw a line of separation between us and them, Christians and non-Christians. But can I say to you, you a real simple truth, if your life, the friends that you associate with, the community that you have, it's just a purely Christian community, and no non-Christians in your life, then you have fallen into the same trap. You have drawn a line between us and them. The Bible gives us permission to be friends with sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. It says this in Luke 7, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What does that mean for us as a faith community, as a people endeavoring to live more hospitably? We offer love and welcome to all, no matter where they are at in faith. People belong before they believe. The last point of hospitality is this. Biblical hospitality unlocks the divine. Hebrews 13, let's have that that, uh, verse up. says this, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Try taking that verse literally. Some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. The Bible tells us that Abraham fed not just angels, but the Lord of angels in Genesis 18. Rahab the harlot, she received and protected the spies. Thanks to her kindness, her, her kindred survived and her name was remembered in Scripture. Martha and Mary, they opened their home for Jesus. He in turn opened the grave of Lazarus for them. And what about this verse? Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Christ's words. As you welcome strangers to your table, you are welcoming God himself. It unlocks the divine. The story in the road of, uh, in, in Luke chapter 24 about the road to Emmaus, much scripture. Let's read that. It says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along them, but they were kept from recognizing him. A bit of context, you know, these were two people, okay, who were traveling to a village called Emmaus. The Bible says it's about seven miles from the city of Jerusalem. And this uh, chapter occurs after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And so at that point, okay, in the history of the church, the church was in hiding. They were afraid for their lives. The Messiah was just killed. All hope was lost. They were scared. They were fearful for their lives. This story accounts for two people walking and journeying to a village called Emmaus. If you do a bit of study today and you'll try to find where 
Emmaus was, you know, or where modern-day Emmaus is, you wouldn't be able to find it. Um, Emmaus in, in that day was such an obscure, was such a town with absolutely nothing, okay? Uh, there was nothing there, there was nothing, no purpose to go there for, and no reason to go to Emmaus. Scholars believe that these two people journeying to Emmaus were actually on the run. They were afraid for their lives and they were escaping to Emmaus because nobody goes to Emmaus. And it's with that context that we read this story. It goes like this, you know, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Next slide. Then their eyes, the Bible says, were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. As they extended hospitality to the Messiah, something like a divine exchange happened. And these men who were fearful for their lives, who were running away, who were escaping, their hearts began to burn. After having fellowship with the Messiah, their hearts began to burn. And then they went back to Jerusalem, the place they were escaping, and they declared that the Lord is alive. That's the vision for our fellowship, for our gatherings, for our meetings, for our life groups. That when we come together, when we break the bread, when we open the scriptures, Jesus is present with us. And that those who come with hearts cold and hardened, hearts fearful, without hope, they would find the fire of God's love, bonus and courage to face another day. That's the vision for our fellowship. Biblical hospitality unlocks the divine. I'd like to close with a question, and the question is this. How do we become more hospitable? How do we become more hospitable as a people? Like I said, culture either happens by design or by default. Today, you know, we are making real attempts to become more hospitable as a people because God so desires for us to be and God so desires for strangers, for aliens, for those far off to experience His love through the church's hospitality. Amen? Are you all with me? As I share, I'm preaching to myself because I need to work on this as well. Introverts nightmare. First one, are you ready? First step we can take to become more hospitable is to greet everyone. Hi, 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 hi. Greet everyone. You know, my mom, you know, I'm, I'm 20, turning 28, they say I'm a big boy. Uh, my mom, you know, when I go to my relative's house, still says, like, Andre, call uncle, call auntie. And I'm like, mom, I know, I know. It's like, call uncle, call auntie. Have you said hi to this uncle? Have you said this? I, my mom still does that. I tell you, man. How many of you, your moms, do that? No? Just on, oh, yeah, thank you. I have a witness. <laughs> One of the strongest rebukes I have ever had from my cell leader growing up, Christine. Uh, yeah, there was a time when Christine would score us. And uh, we used to do this as, uh, as young men, you know, when we walked into a room, you know, and wanted to say hi. No, you're a young men. This is the way we said hi, you know, me and Axel. We'll go in and we'll do this. Right? You get like a double bob if like, you know, I really want to acknowledge you. Men not, yeah, men not. <laughs> no, but I've learned that, that 
one of the clear signs of showing hospitality is to greet everyone. Because it, it says this, it says, I see you and you matter. You matter. You matter enough that it demands my effort to say hi. Hi, how are you? Greet everyone. See, I, I'm self-aware, you know. There are some people with a yes face, and a yes face is like Shen's face, you know. It's like, come talk to me. Come talk to me. Come talk to me. Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. Shen has a face like that. I have uh, what uh, culture calls, you know, let, let me just replace one of the words, a resting no face. Uh, my face just communicates like, no. You know, uh, remember when I was younger, you know, I signed up for the church choir and the church choir required us to understudy in a choir for, um, I think it was like uh, a month, you know, a month. Uh, we had to show up early for a rehearsal for the early morning service and we'll show up for rehearsal and we won't get to sing, but it was part of the understudy process and then they will approve us and we'll get to sing in the church choir. My the church choir is like, you know, 30 people, there are a bunch of people there. So, you know, yeah, I could hide. For some reason, my choir director put me through a year-long, a year-long understudy process. That means for a whole year, I showed up for early morning rehearsal and I didn't get to sing. And at the end of the year, I realized why she put me through a year-long audition process. Because she said, Andre, you don't know how to smile. I was like, I don't know how to smile? She's like, yeah, you're not communicating the joy of the Lord when you sing. I was like, I'm not? And so it never occurred to me that, that I wasn't because inside everything was like joyful, happy, you know, ah, la, la, la. but on my face, you know, because maybe like some weight on my cheeks, you know, it just sags down and I look like the dog, like, mm, you know. And some of us, you know, we are, you know, disposed, you know, we are, we are, we, are, we just look like that, you know. We just look like that, you know, there's nothing you can do, you know. People tell me, like, Andre, smile more, Andre, look more pleasant. I was like, I'm trying my dundas, you know, and, and uh, you know, Botox is what I need. <laughs> for people like you, you know, or for people like me, you, know, uh, you, you resonate, you know, I have a resting no face. One of the sure-fired ways okay, to have people not misunderstand you or not have the wrong perception of you is to go and say hi. You know, even though your face might be droopy and you might look sullen, you can you know, maybe up the, the pitch in the voice like, hi! And then people will know like, oh yeah, this guy really wants to talk to me. Pro tip, pro tip, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you, you notice like when I come and talk to you, I'll be like, hi! <laughs> Greet everyone. Greet everyone. Can you imagine if you have a church like that, yeah? Can you imagine that? That, that would be awesome. You greet everyone. With a high pitch. Second thing we can do to be more hospital is to engage with people. To engage with people. The Bible says this, that all of us carry Christ in us, the hope of glory. Here's my takeaway from that verse. That in every interaction, in every person, is an opportunity to encounter the glory of God. C.S. Lewis, you know, he has this great quote. He says this, that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a nant. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, smoji. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. 
It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with all and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. These are no ordinary people. John Legend has it wrong. We are not ordinary people. You are not a mere mortal. What does it mean to engage with people? It means that we take an interest to those we run across. We ask open-ended questions, discovering more, letting our inner curiosity out. We may think this is all obvious, but often we hold back from doing it. We need to get to know people, take an interest in them, and listen to them. You know, I remember the months leading up to my marriage, I was uh, on a run, which I've not done in a long time. And uh, I was on a run, and I, I, I saw a, a lady uh, downstairs, uh, uh, you know, with a sign that she was begging, you know, and I remember, you know, in the months leading up to marriage, I was just praying, asking God, like, God, give me a revelation for what marriage looks like, and give me a, what, what and a greater understanding of marriage. And and as I did my run, I stopped uh, next to her, and I had some money in my pocket, and I gave it to her, and I just felt like to just have a conversation. And as I was conversing with her, she began to share this story of how her husband has had a, a, a stroke, then. Uh, was paralyzed for some 30 years and she was begging on the road because she wanted to raise money for his medical expenses. They had completely um, utilized every resource that was at their uh, dispense. And so as, as she was sharing with me, you know, uh, I was just hearing her talk and she talked for a good 15-20 minutes. And then she, she, she began to share her, her problems and issues. It was very morbid and dark for a while. But afterwards it turned into, you know, I believe that my husband will get well. I believe if I raise the money, you know, he will get the help he needs and he'll get well. I'm believing for him to uh, walk again. And she began to share, you know, all hopes and her desires for her husband. And she showed me, you know, and in that moment God began to speak to me about this is what marriage is. You know, it stands in the midst of adversity. It's one that's filled with hope, belief. You never know. The person who you often overlook, you know, be, be it a child, be it a person in poverty, be it a person who you deem less skilled, less smart than you, might be the person that God uses to speak to your life. All of us carry it. Christ in us the hope of glory. From the smallest baby to the wisest sage, we all carry that same potential to unleash the glory of God. It's high time we treat people the way Christ treats people. Amen? Next step we can take to being more hospitable as a people. Make meals a priority. Eating and drinking. The Bible over and over again talks about the holiness of eating together, long dinners with good food, good drink, good company, and good conversations that center around our beliefs, hopes, fears. That's a good dinner. And the Bible calls that holy. Something holy happens around your dinner table that will never happen in the sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see bags of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions of faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock. Around the table, there's time to talk. Mexicano, it's not me. <laughs> make meals a, a priority. And, and not just make meals a priority with your friends. Hospitality, its base definition is to extend love and welcome to strangers, to people outside your circle. True hospitality occurs in the context of a love of strangers. Yeah. That's hospitality. Yeah. Hang out with your friends just to hang out. 
but it becomes hospitality when it's extended to a person who believes, behaves, looks like, looks different from you. Amen? To segue into my last point about being more hospitable as a people is to do this, to love the outsider. To love the outsider. An unknown author, he wrote this, hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. To uncommon community. Whether you are in school or at work or even church, there are outliers. There are people who don't fit in. They can't adapt. And what convicts me in my reading of the Bible is that Jesus Christ would have moved toward these people. God extends this radical hospitality to me and you. We love the outsider because we were once the outsider. You're making sense. Galatians 3.28, that's this verse. It says this about our unity. It says there is neither Jew nor gentle, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I talked about you know, the early condition of the church. They were polarized. They were separated from one another. There was a us and them divide. And then Paul writes this in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor, there is, nor is there male and female. It's really obvious that the Gentiles were people of a different nationality. They were the outliers. They were considered sinners. They were considered people far away from God. They're Christ, and then Paul says, made this statement, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The sinners are welcomed as well. There's neither slave nor free, and these speaks of people with different social econ- economic status, different status in his life, the rich and the poor. Paul says that the gospel is not a gospel for the rich, nor is the gospel the gospel for the poor, it's a gospel for all people. And then he, say that, he says, this, nor is there male and female. You know, that's, it's, it's literal. There's neither male or female. No. Men and women, we're all welcome to hear of the gospel of Christ. You know, we have to understand that in that day, women were easily the most oppressed people group. Women weren't allowed uh, an earshot of the Pharisees' teachings. They weren't allowed a seat at the table. They only had to serve. They were given virtually no rights. When a husband mistreats his wife, she had no right to divorce him, but the husband could freely do so. Women had no rights and they were easily the most oppressed people group. And Paul is suggesting to us that the gospel is not just for the people of privilege, but the gospel is for those who are oppressed as well. Let me contextualize this verse for us. What does it mean to be hospitable to people? That means that we treat sinners with care and not contempt. That means those of us who have domestic helpers, we treat our mates our helpers, respect with dignity. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We treat them with dignity and respect. We treat the poor well, but we also treat the rich well. It's not favoring them, but it means not taking advantage of them. You know, I've heard of pastors who will meet with the rich in this congregation and we'll only talk about the needs of the church and not talk about the needs of a person's soul. As a church, we do not favor the rich, nor do we take advantage of them. The gospel is for the rich, for the poor. What does it mean to be hospitable in this context? It means that we pay attention to the marginalized, the oppressed, and the excluded. We offer welcome. That's what hospitality is. We pay attention. We pay attention. Yes, we treat everyone the same, but we pay attention because these are the people that are often overlooked. That's what it means to be 
hospitable. Amen. I'd like to close. When, when I was 10, you know, I had a tuition teacher. Um, she uh, was like nicest person I know, you know. She would uh, give me tuition and after the tuition classes, she would share with me uh, stories from the Bible and I didn't know it was the Bible then, you know, as she was just so nice. She would bake cookies for, for me, for my family and just a really nice person. And um, I remember when I was 10, uh, I was going through a rough patch, you know, as 10 years do. In, you know, in hindsight, it's not so rough, but back then it was like, oh my gosh, my world is crashing down, you know. And I, I shared this before that I was dealing with some form of uh, some suicidal thoughts, you know. I thought about jumping. And I remember uh, going to a house and uh, I was just, you know, uh, feeling really uh, down and out. And uh, at the end of the tuition class, she was like, oh, Andre, uh, what's wrong? And when she said, what's wrong, I began crying at the table. And what she did was she went to the kitchen, she made me a hot cup of Milo. Gave me one of those like square biscuits, and it's like, okay, drink the Milo, eat the biscuits. I was sobbing, I was drinking Milo, eating a biscuit, and, and doing all those stuff. And then she was like, uh, Andre, can I pray for you? And so she prayed for me. And when she prayed for me, I felt like the weights on my shoulders just fell off instantly, you know. And I began to feel this peace, I started weeping. And, and then she brought me to church, and, uh, you know, some significant events later, you know, I, I became Christian. Today, if you ask me, okay, Andre, what was the prayer that she prayed? If you ask me, Andre, what was the content of the first evangelistic message I've ever heard? I won't be able to tell you a single thing. But I remembered the acts of hospitality that led up to me being open to receive the gospel. I'm sure many of you do. You wouldn't be able to remember your first evangelistic summit, the points, the content. But you remember who brought you. You remember who extended welcome and love to you. You remember what effort, what lengths they went to bring you to church. You will remember it. Because that's what hospitality does. It, it leaves a mark. The Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What if that kindness was meant to flow through a conduit, a vessel, you and me? What if we were the ones, you know, are the ones who are called to extend that kindness to a person in need? I'd like to link this back you know, to Andrew's whole sermon about evangelism. Matt Chandler, a brilliant speaker, he, he, he says this, as we walk courageously in our cultural climate, evangelism will look like showing hospitality. Don't hear me say that hospitality is a sum total of courage or evangelism, but don't miss me saying that living courageously will involve living hospitality, hospitably. We start somewhere, maybe a smile to acknowledge a person's existence, a meal to welcome a foreigner, a prayer to bless someone. All these things add up and most importantly reveals a father who has first and foremost been hospitable to us and welcomed us into his fold while we are yet sinners. Let me close off with a final verse in Luke chapter 22. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. In the kingdom, all are welcomed and everyone has a seat at the table. Can we stand?